0: This message is from Icon, from community, Icon church. community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro Atlanta and Metro Atlanta. Grace, community, and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org, at iconcommunitychurch.org. or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The events of Wednesday, January 6th, are gonna be forever etched in our memories, forever burned in our minds as we watched a violent mob seize the Capitol building, causing the deaths of, so far, five people. We watched uh, people uh, knock over barriers, uh, at times unabated, just going right into the Capitol building, uh, hoping to get to the Senate floor with intentions that only God knows. There are stories of some who uh, had a truck of explosives. There are those that came with uh, plastic uh, handcuffs. Again, intentions we can only guess. One of the first rioters that entered into uh, the Senate building, the Senate chamber, was carrying a Christian flag there were others who, were, who, who while seizing uh, the Capitol building, waved Jesus saves banners. Others had banners that said, uh, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. Another flag said, proud American Christian, with an American flag inside of an ichthus, the ancient Christian symbol. We can't, I can't speak to everyone's motives uh, during that riot. But what I can say, and I hope we can say, is that cloaking destructive acts in the name of Jesus has always been an insidious display of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is not Christianity. Christian nationalism is the very antithesis of the kingdom of God. Christian nationalism should be repudiated by anyone and everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a, a, an idolatry that has always infected this nation, and that is Christian nationalism. So what is Christian nationalism? What is this idolatrous uh, heart posture, this idolatrous uh, way of thinking and operating and existing. What is it? Well, there are a few ways to define Christian nationalism. One way is this, the intertwining of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of humankind. In America, this happens anytime, every time we describe America with language that's reserved for the kingdom of God. Anytime we use language that should only be used for the kingdom of God and we apply it to America or any nation for that that matter, we are guilty of nationalism. What is an example of that? Well, there are plenty of times when people, pastors, politicians, just normal citizens have, have said the phrase or referred to America as a city on a hill. Now, this is Jesus's description for God's kingdom. And yet we'll look at America as a city on a hill. Why? That's signifying this unholy matrimony between patriotism and righteousness. It blurs the line between the kingdom of God and the various kingdoms of humankind. Christian nationalism becomes a a civil relationship that places uh, earthly citizenship above the obligation to follow Jesus. Any time that we define our following of Jesus, we define it by the ways in which we adhere to an earthly kingdom. We are guilty of nationalism. Christian nationalism is a perversion of the gospel itself. And it does it in, 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 in a couple of ways. One is by giving a messianic identity to a nation. Anytime a nation takes on the identity of a savior in any way, we are guilty of nationalism, specifically as Christians, Christian nationalism. And we do that in a couple of ways. One way is anytime the nation or the interests of a nation are seen as the primary mechanism for saving human history, we're guilty of Christian nationalism. There are a few examples of that throughout history. We can go through several words from presidents going all the way back to the founding of our nation to the president uh, uh, that is getting ready to leave office uh, pretty soon. Thomas Jefferson called the United States the world's best hope. Abraham Lincoln said that the unity of the U.S. and its form of government is the last best hope of Earth. Woodrow Wilson said he believed that he would live to see the day in which America would reach all its hopes and would say, at least the world knows America as the savior of the world. Donald Trump said we must keep America first in our hearts and we must always keep faith in America's destiny, that one nation under God must be the hope And the promise and the light and the glory among all the nations of the world. All of these are classic examples of the messianic pretense, which characterizes nationalism. When I said those some of those things, you probably thought, well, what's wrong with that? Some of us may have thought, well, what's the big deal with that? Why? What's wrong with loving your nation? What's wrong with loving your country? What's wrong with wanting to see your country be number one? I'm going to say this. I know I've said it before. Uh, in social media, we, we've expressed this before. I think we need to be very careful about what we mean when we say we love a nation. We have never been called to love a nation. We have never been required as believers to love a nation. What we have been called to do, what God's people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament have always been called to do is to love God and love their neighbor. That is what we are called to do. So, to the degree that your citizenship in whatever nation that you're in, but specifically in America, to the degree that your American citizenship empowers you to love your neighbor better, then that's how your love should be oriented. It should not be oriented in I love my country, therefore my Christianity will be used to love my country better. That's Christian nationalism. That is idolatry. That is sin. And sin not only hurts, we just saw last Wednesday, sin kills. We have to get to a place where we're able to not only identify sin, but to be able to see sin the way God views sin. The other way that we uh, embody this Christian nationalism, the way we give a messianic identity to a nation, is we fully embrace Satan's third temptation of Christ to take up the way of might and greatness as a way of saving the world. This is not the gospel. This is not the kingdom of God. Anything or anyone that gets elevated to the role of savior outside of God that thing or that person becomes an idol and God hates idols. P- please understand this. We love the God that loves you better make, You better get real familiar with the God who hates because God hates any other God. God hates any other idol. Anything that we elevate to the status of a savior, is an idol. God hates it. He crushes it and he cuts it out. And he commands us to hate them, crush them and cut it out. The story of Hosea illustrates this point <clears throat> perfectly for us. But a note before we dive into this, the, the, the last remaining parts of Hosea, be very careful not to do what we are so prone to do in America because Christianity has been conflated and combined with Christian nationalism that the way we read the Bible is informed by nationalistic approaches. So be very careful. When we read the Old Testament, when we read God engaging with the nation of Israel, do not make the mistake of substituting America in the place of the nation of Israel when you're reading the scriptures. Do not make the mistake of asking the question, uh, what does God have to say to America from the scriptures? Let me explain why. When we read the scriptures and you look at the way God engages with Israel, you have to understand contextually what Israel was to the world and to the nations. Israel was a theocratic nation. They were led by God. God intended at their beginning, at the outset, from the inchoate phases of the nation of Israel, they were meant to follow God first. All of their laws were completely given to them by God. They were meant to be the full expression of the heart and the purpose and the character of God for the rest of the world to see. They were meant to uh, show the world their need for a savior and prepare the world for the savior to arrive. That was the role, the nation of Israel. That was the purpose of the nation of Israel. There's not another nation before or after that would ever fulfill that role. They are a theocratic nation. So when God talks to Israel, he means to talk to Israel. So when we ask the question, what does God have to say to America? God has nothing to say to America. God has something to say to the followers of God who live in America. God has something to say to those who are the community of God who are in America. The same way that God had something to say to his people in the Old Testament, which, was, which were the, the, the citizens and, and the, the, the very theocratic nation of Israel. He has something to say to his people now who are gathered in all nations all over the world. Here in America, God has something to say to his church. God has something to say to his followers. God has something to say to any of those who profess to be lovers of God, followers of Jesus, claim to be Christ followers and disciples of Jesus. That's who he talks to. There's not a nation that God is in is is saying this is my nation and I'm using this nation for X, Y and Z. God has his people. We are all a part of his kingdom. Be very careful. So when we read in these passages, okay, uh, let's look at how God dealt with this nation. Therefore, America should do X, Y and Z. No. That's not the approach. That's very bad approach to scripture that shows very bad understanding of biblical context. And frankly, it shows a desire to still uh, 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 force Christian nationalism on their interpretation of the text. God has nothing to say to America, but he has something to say to Christians that are here. He has something to say to followers of Jesus that are here. What does God have to say about idolatry? What does God have to say about how he treats idolatry? What does God have to say about the way that idolatry makes God feel? What does God have to say uh, to those who finally uh, acknowledge their idolatry and are wanting to know what they can do about it now? God absolutely has something to say. So so when we're responding to this, let's not let us not get to this place where we say America needs a savior. America needs to return to God. America was not born with a savior. America was not born serving one specific God. America has people in the borders of America that claim to follow God, that claim to follow Jesus. So it's not that America needs a savior. There are people in America that need to believe and hold to all aspects of the kingdom. Of the Savior, not just the ones that they choose to hold on to, not just the ones that they choose that make them feel better or safe, or not just the ones that they can appropriate in order to maintain power and privilege. All of God's kingdom matters here. That's what matters. So let's not get twisted. Let's not get to this. America needs to that assumes that America ever at any place or time was uh, completely uh, uh, sold out. And in submission to the kingdom of God, history laughs at that. History shows that there have been people who have claimed to love Jesus and yet done done things that thumb their nose at the very kingdom of God the same way. That the people in Israel, the people in the northern kingdom, the people to which Hosea had been sent to call out their idolatry had also uh, engaged and taken on a new idol that they thought would serve their purposes better. And in so doing, failed to care for people in their community, failed to uh, uh, protect justice for citizens of the nation of Israel, failed to uh, follow God, failed to obey God, began to worship other gods. That's who God, that's what God is. That's what God is pointing out here. And that's what God is pointing out to us. As we have looked at Hosea, we've seen a few things that hopefully you can see uh, similarities with our own nation. Again, God keeps showing that he hates idols. He hates when his people exchange a relationship with God with a religion of idolatry. He's always hated it. And what he's always done with his people, anytime we start exchanging God for idols, he's in the habit of ripping them out, cutting them out. Not just so that people can be punished, but so that people can grow. Take a look at some of these examples or this comparison here between Hosea and Gomer and then God and Israel. By way of review, we talked about Hosea, this prophet who marries Gomer. We saw that in chapter one. In the same way, God was betrothed to Israel. We saw that in chapter two. We see that Hosea is a faithful husband in chapter three. We see God described as a faithful husband in chapter one, verse seven. We see that Hosea's love is unrequited in chapter three. We see that God's love is unrequited as well in chapter three. We see that the relationship between Hosea and Gomer disintegrates. The relationship between God and Israel disintegrates. Gomer pursues other men. Israel pursues other gods. Gomer is indifferent to the feelings of her husband Hosea. Israel is indifferent to the feelings of their God. Hosea has a daughter whose name Lo-Ruhamah means not loved or no mercy. God says he will not have pity on his wayward children in Israel. In chapter 5, Hosea has a son whose name "Lo Ami," means not my people. What does God do? God declares that the Israelites are not his people. And at the very end, Hosea redeems and restores the adulterous Gomer. God redeems and restores the unfaithful nation of Israel. What do we see in this story of Hosea? What are we noticing in how God hates idolatry? What are we noticing about that? What are you noticing about the way in which God responds to idolatry? It's not enough to just say this is bad or that is sickening or that is disgusting. The bigger question is, what does God feel about this and how is God likely to respond? Maybe a better question is, how is God responding to your idolatry in your own heart? How was God responding to my idolatry in my heart? The way God responds to idolatry might not sound very comfortable, but the way God responds to idolatry is by cutting. Hear, Hear this, because this might sound very different. If you've always understood or believed in God in a way that says God is loving and is warm and is comforting, which he is. But then you've divorced the other aspect of God that says, I love you so much that the things that grow out of you that are not like me, I cut them out. The idolatry that starts to come out of you, that emanates out of you, things that you have held to, that you cling to for trust, that you cling to for protection, that you cling to for provision, that you cling to for privilege. Those things that are not like me, I am cutting them out. Out, and I'm not cutting them out in order for you to be punished. I'm cutting them out in order for you to be to for you to grow. I'm cutting them out in order for you to be finished, in order for you to be thoroughly furnished so that you can live out and emulate the very kingdom that I came to bring. So what what is a really easy way to think about this? Well, if you uh, go to the gym, anytime I go to the gym and I want to get a really, really good workout. The way I know that I had a good workout is basically how sore I might feel the next day. If I'm uh, wanting to 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 change up the muscle memory, sometimes you do the same workouts the same way for so long. You get the gains that you're going to get and it really doesn't change much. So you may not be a sore anymore. Right. But when you want to grow muscle differently and you want them to develop muscle differently, you change up your routine so that you can work a different aspect of the muscle. What's happening when you're working out? what happens when you work out in order for your muscle to grow for muscle to develop muscle has to be torn you see when you're lifting weights every time you're lifting weights you're lifting a little bit more weight than you're accustomed to your muscles aren't accustomed to lifting that kind of weight and so the muscles the fibers begin to tear not in a way that causes irreparable damage to your body but there is a little bit of a necessary damage that happens why because when that muscle fiber tears When it grows back, it grows back stronger and the muscle becomes a little bit stronger, becomes a little bit more developed, becomes a little bit more defined, becomes a little bit more refined. You cannot grow if you never get cut. God is in the business of cutting idolatry completely out of his people, completely out of his kingdom, in this case, completely out of his nation. And so when you see some of the language that's used in Hosea 6, Think about the way that is that that God describes that Hosea describes uh, the the people of God and how they are responding to God calling out all the ways that their idolatry is showing up in their musculature. Right. Look at what said what he says in, in chapter six, verse one. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us. This is them acknowledging he has torn us. He has ripped away some of the things that we have clung to. And sometimes if you are in a situation where you have uh, maybe you've been eating poorly, or we haven't worked out in a while. And so there are n- a number of things that start to build fat that might burn, uh, build up around the muscle that needs to be burned away. And muscle itself is not forming well. So it's weakening, it's atrophying. And the only way for the muscle to grow again the only way for real fruit to show is for it to be cut, is for it to be torn. And so God's people, Hosea, is speaking. Uh, and the people say they've been called to repent. And Hosea is calling the people to repent. There is no repentance without a tearing happening. It's just, it just doesn't happen. So, so, so repentance never happens fully comfortably. There, there, there's no such thing as a comfortable repentance. There's, so, there's no such thing as being called out and it feeling comfortable. On some level, there has to be some discomfort. And that discomfort is good for you because your muscle grows back stronger. So when they say, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. We need to be torn. Israel needed to be torn. Israel had become married to other gods. So much so that God used the relationship of Homer, of Hosea and Gomer, used their relationship as a metaphor, as an object lesson for Israel's sin. What is God saying to us? He's saying all the ways that you have taken Christian nationalism and made it your God. You're no different than the people of Israel who had made Baal their God. Baal. When you look at first and second Kings and you look at the relationship that Israel had with Baal in many ways, Israel saw in order to the the nations are requiring us to uh, worship these gods. Our lives will be better off if we engage in this way. Our lives will be better off if we worship Baal in the way that they worship Baal, because there's privileges that uh, uh, that will be afforded to us. If I worship Baal, life will be better. I'll be better protected. My family will be better off. I will be able to 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 subsist in this nation. There's threats all around. I'll be safer this way. My my economic situation will be better in this way. And the reason why Baal gets brought up is because in the worship of Baal, one of the primary ways that people would worship Baal is through sexual idolatry, through relationships with temple prostitutes. The the, the word in the Hebrew that's used to describe uh, the activities of Gomer here is one that was most often used of temple prostitutes. That would be used of some of these sexual temple priestesses. And so that's why a lot of people tend to think or wonder if that was not the the, the type of behavior that she was involved in. But God compares the children of Israel to that of a sexual temple prostitute. That that in other words, you see uh, words used in other chapters here where it's like you've you've exchanged love. You've made your love for hire, which is frankly what a prostitute would do you've said whoever's going to give me the best chance at making it whoever's going to give me the best chance at surviving i will i will give you undying fealty i will give you my undying obedience i will give you my undying worship which means anytime that i am willing to worship a nation more than the kingdom of God, I will have no problem seeing people harmed and even being responsible for it. I have no problem seeing injustice and actually being the, 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 the perpetrator of injustice because I'm doing it in the name of my new God. What we do here in America, specifically American Christians, we've gotta be very careful that we don't take uh, uh, nationalism Join it to this idea of Christianity and then claim that we are doing God's work. Because in many ways, much like Israel, we are doing the work of the harlot. If you uh, uh, feel like it's okay to storm into a government building to walk in and begin to attack different police officers because you believe that rights have been taken away. This is a very dangerous thing. Because here's what idolatry does. Idolatry starts to rewire how you see facts. Idolatry starts to basically what happens is you start to see only the things that align with what you already believe because you have a worship of a different God now. And so if you're worshiping at the throne of Christian nationalism, then you'll only look for the facts that will inform your Christian nationalism. You will only look for the facts that will allow you to 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 maintain your Christian nationalism. And so what happens is when that gets challenged, it feels like a tearing. When that gets challenged, it feels like you're being attacked. When you get challenged, your idolatry becomes exposed. And we've said many times exposure feels like you're being attacked. Exposure feels like you're being assaulted. Exposure feels like somebody is doing something to you. But truly, this exposure is really the grace of God. Truly, if we get to a place where we say, am I am I believing something or choosing to believe something because it allows me to maintain an idol that I just don't want to give up? Is my view of America, has it been formed by a Christian nationalistic history or is it formed by a much more honest and healthy view of ways in which God's people use their Christian rights in a way to love their neighbor well, in a way to love God well, and ways in which people who claim to love God have in, instead used their rights In order to subjugate the rights of others. You see, if we don't get to a place where we where we are able to call out and repudiate idolatry, we are not the church. So you might be wearing a T-shirt that says Jesus on it, but you have a heart that doesn't have Jesus in it. This is what the kingdom of God should look like for us. In other words, there should never be a time where if we say we follow Jesus, that we are lockstep with whatever nation we live in. Because the nation has its own, nations have their own responsibilities. Nation have their own roles. There's no question about that. And should we engage? Absolutely. Should we care? Absolutely. To the degree that we can love God and other people well, that's how and why we engage. But at the end of the day, Our ultimate trust and hope can't be in the nation doing its job well. It has to be in the citizens loving God and loving people well. That has to be it. So our trust has to be questioned. What are we trusting in? So if that's the case, if we already say God hates idolatry of any kind, of all sorts, And God is on a mission to cut out and root out all idolatry. And we in our sanctification should be on a mission to root out, cut out, carve out all areas of idolatry. How should the church forget about how should America respond? Forget about what is God saying to America? What is God saying to his church? What is God saying to those who claim to follow him? God Is saying in the same way he said to Hosea, a full throated denouncement of worship of Baal, a full throated denouncement of the ways in which they have married themselves to other gods, completely renouncing all other gods and forms of worship. God is calling us to do the same. He's calling us to a full throated denouncement of Christian nationalism. We know this because when you look at the way that Israel responded, yes, when you look through chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, you see a ton of examples where God is constantly going back and forth with lamenting Israel's sin, lamenting Israel's uh, corruption, lamenting the ways in which Israel would bribe their leaders in order for them to get better situations, lamenting the ways that Israel would put their hopes in false ways. They would falsely hope in the nation to protect them, falsely hope in bail to protect them, falsely hope in their standing in the community to protect them. God starts warning them about the coming exile. Consequences are coming. The same thing is for us. Consequences are coming. And then God professes, I still love you, but consequences are coming. Judgment is, is pronounced upon Israel, not only upon Israel, but those that will come after Israel. God begins to uh, bring all kinds of judgment on their people. But at the very end, when you get to chapter 14, you get the same rhythm that we saw at the beginning of this of this book. God calls out sin. He pronounces judgment on on his on his children. He pronounces judgment on his people. And then he also pronounces uh, a plea to repent and a promise to restore. He says, I'm telling you, I'm calling you to repentance. He doesn't just leave us, even if we are in the worst, in the throes of our idolatry. He, much like Gomer, was in the throes of adultery. And Hosea said, I'm pleading for you to repent and I'm coming to restore you. God is saying, I'm pleading for you to repent of your Christian nationalism. And I promise to restore you. You don't have to stay in this. We don't have to stay in this. We don't have to keep thinking this way. I don't care what a founding father said. I don't care what your own father said. I don't care what your favorite political leader said. You don't have to stay like this. We can call out what it is. We can call it what it is. We can say what God says about it. It's idolatry. Period. We don't have to ask for God to bless America. We can ask for God to root out our idolatry. That's what the heart of the Christian should be. I'm not just asking for you to bless me. I'm asking for you to cut out idolatry from me. Change my heart. What do we see in the very end in Hosea 14? He says this, Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Listen to these words. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good, so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands. For the fatherless receives compassion. In you, And then what does God promise to do? I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them for my anger will have turned away from him. I will be like dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread and his splendor will be like the olive tree, his fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath his shade. They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, why should I have anything more to do with idols? It is I who answer and watch over him. I am like a flourishing pine tree. Your fruit comes from me. Finally, let whoever is wise understand these things. And whoever is insightful, recognize them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the final thing that God calls us to. And you're going to see this throughout our series in the in in the minor prophets. There's this there's a there's a threefold uh, 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 way of repentance that we see being being brought out here in chapter 14. And one of the first things we see is this. And, and this is such a big one in verse three. How does how do the children of Israel once they've been cut, once they have uh, been exposed, once their sin has been pointed out, which sadly many of us never get to that point, because when that begins to be exposed, you know what happens? We just hunker down. We start to cling to our idol even more tightly. Hey, that's not the way Christians should be. You know what? If you're talking against America, you must not be a Christian. That's how nationalism works. But if there are things in America that don't honor God and we begin to call that out, that actually should be what every Christian does. But sadly, if you have this unholy matrimony, you don't even have the wherewithal to do that. That There's a slavery in that. There's a bondage in that. And God has come and is calling to break us of that. So once we get to that point, we can say what's said in verse three of chapter 14. Assyria will not save us. What is this really pointing to? Well, if you really think of the name Hosea, Hosea literally means Yahweh saves. God saves. Hosea has been chiding them from chapter one all the way to chapter 14 again and again for making this this allegiance with Assyria as a means of survival. In order to make it and I get it, there's a practicality, there's a pragmatism there. Hey, life might be better if I'm raised in a family where Christian nationalism is is the is the way we rock. Then I stand to lose a lot if I start to speak out against that or I'm raised in a community where Christian nationalism is the way that we rock. So I stand to lose if I speak out against that. Or I've been raised in a church where Christian nationalism is the way we rock. So I stand to lose a lot if I speak out against that. And so I will start to act as if it is America who saves. Yeah, I might sprinkle God in there. God bless America so that America can be the savior we want it to be. But that's not what God says. And that's not God's heart. And that's not God's kingdom. And what Hosea is trying to show the children of Israel is, yes, my name means Yahweh saves, but you're trusting in your nation to save you. You've been trusting in your nation. You've been your biggest hope in homeland security is that the empires of Egypt and the empires of Assyria will continue to protect, protect you. Continue to keep you uh, to make sure that you know which side to get on. What's the best side that's going to provide the most protection for me? Well, if Christian nationalism means that I'm going to be able to stand a little bit better in America, then that's the way I'm going to go. I will marry my Christianity to that. And what Hosea and what God calls them out is stop trusting in that return to the Lord. We don't have to stay in Christian nationalism. We can return to Christ. We don't have to make up a bunch of false gods and and plaster Jesus saves on it. We can actually return to Jesus or we can follow Jesus for the first time. That's what we're called to. So so eventually the Israelites get to this place where they're like, I'm so cut and I'm broken because I realize I've been trusting in the nation and the nation's interests more than I've trusted the kingdom of God. I've, I've exchanged A real relationship with God for a religion that promises me power, privilege and protection. I don't have to keep doing that anymore. In other words, Assyria will not save us. So what does the Christian in America say? America will not save us. America will not save me. America will not save the world. What do they say next? We will not ride on horses. So they're not going to make any other sign that they thought would show military strength in order to help them. In other words, I'm not just going to trust the ideals of a nation to save me, but I'm not going to trust in the might of a nation to save me. I'm only going to trust in the very heart of God and the very power of God. That's what the Christian says. What the follower of Jesus says is I am no longer going to trust in the uh, this this unwielding uh, this this unquestioning fealty to a nation. So we're not going to trust in Assyria and we're not going to we're not going to ride on horses. We're not going to show military might. And then finally, we will no longer proclaim, quote unquote, our gods to the work of our hands. They could have actually added uh, your prophet has convinced us that the bales and the calves that we made, they never did a thing for us. All these false gods that we've been participating in, they never did anything for us. We said our gods, our gods until we were out of breath. But these hunks of metal, these chunks of wood that they are, they never replied. How has it really worked out for you spiritually? How has it really worked out? And even more so to not be so selfish. It's not just how was Christian national- nationalism worked out for you, but open your eyes and open your heart and go, how has Christian nationalism worked out for my neighbor? How has Christian nationalism worked out for the least of these? It hasn't because it doesn't save. It actually only enslaves. So here, God's people are looking and they're going, we've been trusting in a nation and that a nation can't save us. We've been trusting in the might of a nation and the might of a nation can't save us. We've been trusting in the own work of our hands. How do we talk about that as America? We trust in the spirit of America. We trust in American ingenuity. We trust in the American ideals. If we trust in it more than we trust in God, then it is an idol. Then it is sin. And it leads us into some of the darkest depths of demonic activity. This thing, this is demonic. This isn't just something that's just bad or or a bunch of um, um, personality flaws. This is a spiritual attack that is as old as the Garden of Eden itself. The temptation to trust in something else other than God is a spiritually demonic problem. So we do have a choice. Whose report will we really believe? Are we going to believe in a God that says, I am your savior exclusively. I am the one in whom you trust exclusively. I am the provider exclusively. I am the protector exclusively. If we cannot answer all those questions in the affirmative, then we have erected other gods in our lives. And what we saw on Wednesday showed that Christian nationalism is a very formidable God in this country. So this means that we need to go to a place of real confession, the way that uh, the Israelites uh, began to confess. What does a, a, a real confession sound like? It should sound like this. Our fears caused us to look everywhere and to everyone except for you, even while we called on your name. So we trusted in might and we trusted in rioting and we trusted in violence because we believed that certain rights were being abridged, even though every piece of evidence showed that it wasn't. But that's neither here nor there. We trusted in a thing being uh, against us. And because we trusted that there was a better way to get what we thought was taken from us, then we trusted in something else instead of you. So we stormed certain people stormed the Capitol. And as they stormed, they were no different than the adulterers in the Old Testament. You called idolatry, adultery and abandonment and turning away. So it is with us. So in our confession, God, we will speak of these no more. No more uh, uh, will words like the ones we've been using. No more will the attitudes and the activities that we've been using. We're not going to allow that to intrude into our worship anymore. This won't be the way we worship God, because you do realize what we saw on Wednesday was a form of worship. It was a form of worship of a completely false God, a God of Christian nationalism. And it was a complete uh, form of worship of ourselves, of themselves. This is idolatry manifest in the flesh. So our confession should be we will no longer speak this way. We will no longer say or proclaim as if it is an entitlement. God bless America. We will confess. God change us. God save us. God deliver us. God protect us. God show us all the ways in which we are not imaging you well. And then break those areas in our hearts, rip those areas in our hearts and then rebuild them like strong muscles are meant to so that we can follow so that we can live out all of the implications of your kingdom. We will turn back. We will understand that there is no one but you. We will call on you and you alone. We'll stop talking about other powers. We'll stop talking about other gods and we'll start using words about you. We'll start uh, having and we'll start sharing your heart on things and not just ours. We'll stop taking the things that we want to be true. We'll stop taking false ideas and conspiracies and then finding ways to slap some of your verses onto them and then calling that truth. We will give up our idolatry. In you alone, the orphan finds compassion. You gave us those words. We recited them in your commandments. We sang them again and again in numerous psalms. You gave us these instructions to do as you do for the orphan and the widow. But we didn't remember. We turned conveniently. We forgot. We worried about our own well-being. And we forgot about the needs of the orphan. We forgot about the needs of the neighbor. We only cared about ourselves. At the end of the day, for the Christian, for those who claim to follow Jesus, we have one thing before us. When we profess to be a Christian, we must ask if we are a Christian as a nationalist identity, or if we are a Christian because we truly follow Jesus. It is only the answer to that question that says whether or not God is truly God to us, whether or not Jesus is truly Jesus to us. Otherwise, we are adulterers with a Jesus saves banner in our hands. May God break our hearts. May God tear out idolatry. May God convict us in such a way that we respond with confession and repentance and repair. Let's pray. Father, we are desperately in need of you. We say this, we profess these words so often, and yet God in our heart of hearts, I'm not sure we always believe that. We say we need you, but God, what we're witnessing is we truly are saying we just need you to help bring about our agendas. We need you to help bring about our plans. We need you to help uh, in you. Basically, we're praying for you to 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 help us um, satisfy our selfish, idolatrous and even nationalistic goals. God, we realize that you are not the God of America, but you are the God of your people. You are the God of the church. And so, God, I pray, I pray that you would do the work of cutting. That you would take our sin, you would put it on the chopping block, and that you would cut it away. I pray that there would be real discomfort that we feel. I pray that it would be the kind of discomfort that isn't crippling, but it creates a soreness that reminds us that real growth is coming. Father, I'm thankful that even in the midst of our idolatry, even in the worst of our idolatry, you promise to restore us, you promise to enable us to return, you promise to to, to heal us. So God tear us and then heal us, break us and then remake us. Father, we repent, we confess, and we're so thankful that even in everything in our hearts that would declare that we are not yours, you love us, you call us back to you, and you still call us yours. So God, I pray that today you indeed would make us yours, that every day you would remake us into yours. We pray that now in Jesus name. Amen. Let's receive the benediction of God together. Let this not be just another ritualistic thing. I pray that as you hear these words, listen to the words of our God, not our nation, Not our ideals, not our great history, not anything about our country. Listen to what God does as your provider, as your protector. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our savior, be glory, be majesty, dominion. And power both now and forever. And may all of God's people, all of the followers of Jesus say, Amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all.